my viewpoint about gins are a, a bit different. Um, I don't I don't necessarily agree with the idea that you have to have large numbers of botanicals to make a good gin. Um, I feel that if you limit yourself to just a few botanicals, you actually create a gin that for the consumer is more interesting. Today I'm talking to Hendra Barnard. He's master distiller at the Gym and Tonic Distillery in London. It's so lovely to meet you here on Zoom. Thank you very much. Good to meet you too. Yeah. Um, I'm really intrigued by the name of your gin, Gym and Tonic. How yes. did you get on this name? Well, um, the owner of the company is James Mark. Um, his nickname mm -hmm. is, uh, is Jim. And we came up with the concept of the distillery when, or of the brand, originally it wasn't a distillery, it was just a, a gin events company. He uh, came up with the idea when he was on a ski holiday in Norway. And um, up to that point in time, he was a gin consumer, but it, gin back then was kind of still quite boring. It was uh, pretty much limited to your mass-produced gins like your Gordons and your Beefeater. You'd go to a pub, especially now in the UK, and you'd order it and it would become in a standard tumbler or highball glass with a bit of Swepps tonic and maybe a slice of lemon as a garnish, and that was it. But when he was on the skiing holiday in Norway, he was for the first time introduced to gin served with a bit of flair and difference. The big balloon copper glasses and interesting tonics, flavored tonics, interesting garnishes um, like berries and juniper and mint leaves and all kinds of things. And it made gin a production. And um, he was fascinated by this. And one gin led to another gin. And uh, after a while, he started slurring his words. And gin and tonic came out as gym and tonic. His <laughs> friends thought that was hilarious. Um, and it became the running joke of the night and of the trip. And uh, I think it was later on that evening where probably still much under the influence of the gins, he just decided he's going to buy this domain name and he went online and he registered Brilliant. the domain for 50 pounds and that was it and he suddenly he was found himself coming back to the uk after the holiday and he's now registered this domain now what's he going to do with it and well that was the start of the company isn't it amazing i mean the, that way around he did it you know bought the domain and then started the business usually people yeah, do the other way around Absolutely. It was just like, uh, I think, right place, right time. And he found a, um, a way to, to utilize it effectively. Um, like I say, originally the company was not, I don't think the plan was to, to start a distillery at all. Of it. Initially, it was just to bring this concept of these interesting gins and interesting tonics and the perfect serve to bring that concept to the UK, I mean, it, it existed here, but it wasn't commonplace. It was your high-end cocktail bars and restaurants and hotels, they would be doing it. But he thought, why not bring it to the masses? And uh, the concept started as a mobile events company, um, took a, a old vintage van and converted that to, uh, to a mobile gin bar. Um, but there was no product. So the product was basically gins that he liked and his partners liked, um, tonics that they liked, so they would buy this, they would experiment. 
um, it was fun. Um, they, it wasn't a primary job. It was a sideline or a side hustle, as they as they say these days. And they, they really pushed the boundaries. Um, I've only recently heard some of the things they tried in the beginning using things like marshmallows and chocolate and so on as garnishes mm-hmm. and these gin and tonics. So it was really like pushing the boundaries of what a gin serve could be and should be, what a gin cocktail could be and should be. And they went out doing corporate events, golf days, weddings, and so forth. And slowly but surely, the brand grew from there to where we are today. But isn't that interesting that they did that, you know, that they did break the rules a little bit to to try and figure out then uh, what it is that they wanted to do? Well, yeah, I think that's it's important. I mean, uh, especially these days um, in the spirits industry in general, well, not just spirits, I mean, anything liquor-related, breweries, wineries, and so forth. But if we focus on spirits, in the spirit industry and in the gin industry specifically, there's so much competition these days, so much brands. If you're just going to follow the cookie-cutter mold of what everybody else is doing, you're not going to make a mark. You're not going to succeed. It's only those brands that really kind of push the boundaries, do something different, take people by surprise, that can really, in my opinion, um, grow. Because if you're starting off as a small business with a limited amount of capital, you've got a limited marketing budget, the only way you're going to get noticed is by doing something that people don't expect. And that leads to word of mouth, that leads to media ad, um, um, coverage, that leads to the type of advertising that you don't necessarily have the budget to buy. So, and I mean, still, still today, word of mouth is still our best means of advertising. If you, people trust other people, um, if you look at social media, the whole thing about influencers and so on, basically, that's just the modern day version of word of mouth advertising. Yeah. Um, we think we've changed as people and as consumers. Actually, we haven't. It's just the, the way we communicate that has changed, but people still trust other people's opinions. So what you want to do is you want to stimulate that conversation. You want to stimulate um, social media. You want to, uh, interaction. You want coverage. And that leads to growth. Well, you've got already a catchy name. So I think that's already a, <laughs> a, good, a good thing. But now, Indra, how did you get into the business then? Um, well, for me, the journey was quite uh, different, actually. I originally started studying engineering in uh, in South Africa, um, and in, but I ended up not going into, into engineering per se. I utilized that knowledge working in the wine industry for a couple of years. And then I went into uh, hospitality for about 17 years, where I learned all the different aspects of the liquor trade and so on, everything from bars to restaurants to clubs to hotels, uh, the corporate events management as well as um, liquor stores. Um, but then I got kind of tired of hospitality. There's a point in hospitality where if the if you start losing your temper with customers, you know you need to get out of it. And I reached that point where it, 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 it takes a toll and then you need to get out of the industry. And just more at that point in time, a company in South Africa called Distillique, um, which specializes in distillation training and equipment, they were looking for somebody to take over the training um, aspect of their business. And I have the right background from engineering, uh, which taught me about distillation, fermentation I learned in the wine industry, the liquor trade I learned in the hospitality industry. And for one of the companies I worked for, I was a national training manager. So I had that background as well. So I started with Distillique and for about seven years, I worked for them. Uh, we trained just over 9,000 individuals in that period of time wow. for distilling. 
Um, in South Africa, home distilling is legal, so that formed a big part of our um, base. But we expanded across to uh, training people from other countries. I had trainees from about 46 countries uh, worldwide. And, um, but the training was only the first part. We would train people to distill. We would sell them the initial equipment, home uh, dis uh, distilling equipment, uh, product development equipment, and then take them on that journey to become commercial distillers. So we set up about 120 uh, craft distilleries in 14 different countries worldwide. Um, mm -hmm. So that gave us a lot of experience. I've gained a lot of experience doing that. Um, but there comes a point where you want to like, try to do something different, move on to uh, other things. Um, so uh, I put my name out there and I was actually very lucky and privileged. I was approached by three companies, one in Italy, one in um, Ireland, and then by Gym and Tonic um, to, and they all three offered me position. But in the end, I decided that Gym and Tonic fit, fit me the best because it's not just about the um, production of alcohol. Um, Gym and Tonic does a lot of other things as well, uh, specifically with the fact that they are a sustainable urban brand, um, which aligns very well um, or quite well with my hobbies and interests as well in terms of sustainability, self-sufficiency, off-grid um, living and that type of thing. So this is a brand that actually allows me to couple those two aspects of my professional and personal life into one business. Um, as well, the company is now in a, in a growth spurt, a, a, a quite a bit of an expansion happening. We're setting up uh, additional sites, um, not just in London, but in um, we're looking at additional sites in the UK as well as in Europe, um, which with my background of this league, setting up and designing distilleries and so forth, it kind of fits very well together. So yeah, it was for me off the office, the best one to take. And that's how I ended up here. Well, it's interesting that you say now about the sustainability and, and the, that, that it is also now important when you do a business that you do keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. And I see that also I've spoken to some winemakers as well, and everybody seems to be very much conscious of that and conscious of, of how they do business. And it's not just now just doing business, but how do you do business and the responsibility of of doing business that way. Yeah. So how are you in, in the in the gin industry? How do you keep to that? Well, it's it's a little bit difficult. Um, I think firstly, we need to understand if we're talking about sustainability, what are we actually talking about? Because it's first and foremost, at least in our view of looking at it, it's not just about the environmental aspect of sustainability. If you look at the UN, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, there is, if I remember correctly now, 13 um, developmental goals that they've set, um, which is environment is maybe one aspect there's a little overlap in some of the others like uh, water and uh, marine life and mm -hmm. that type of thing is separate but so there's a bit of overlap in terms of our environment but the rest is about um, human rights um, the right to uh, earn an income um, the right uh, to or the, to end domestic abuse education there's a lot of aspects to sustainability and our focus started originally very much environmentally focused, but we are now expanding that to cover as many of these sustainable development goals as we can. And you might think that for a small business, um, 
It's uh, we're saying that you're going to end poverty, which is one of the goals. I mean, there's no way we're going to end poverty, but it's about what is that little thing that you can do that will make a little bit of a difference. For instance, uh, Jim and Tonic has always been a, a living wage employer, which is a, a, a minimum standard, not a legal minimum, but a voluntary minimum wage that you pay in the UK to allow people to live uh, a minimum lifestyle. And it differs from area to area. London being one of the most expensive cities in the world to live, the um, uh, living wage here would be higher than, let's say, in um, Portsmouth or uh, some other, uh, another city in the UK. So there's a lot of things that we do that's not just environmentally focused, but originally that started as environmental focus, but it wasn't because it was expected, if I can put it like that. It was something that Jim and uh, some of his partners that started the company that they believe quite strongly personally that they wanted the business to be a sustainable business. A lot of companies go on the sustainability journey because they think it is expected from the consumer uh, uh, viewpoint. And that, if you look on social media, for instance, and read all these articles and LinkedIn and everywhere else, it comes through as if it's a very, very strong thing from a consumer side. Our market research has actually shown us that's not the case, unfortunately, that the consumers couldn't really care less um, whether it's sustainable or not. So I'll be honest with you that from a marketing perspective, uh, we saying that we are a sustainable brand doesn't really help us that much, but that doesn't matter to us. We're doing it because we feel it is the right way to do business and it's the way we want to do business. Now, above and beyond that, in the UK, they have this goal, I think it's 2030 or 2035, um, to be all businesses must be carbon neutral or carbon negative. So yes, there is a legal aspect to it as well, well that eventually we would need to comply. So what we've done is we've broken it up into various different aspects of sustainability. Um, some of it being power-based, uh, our energy that we use, distilling, whether you're a gin producer buying in neutral and converting that, or whether you're distilling from raw material, it's an energy-intensive process. Um, mm. Heat energy to boil, to create the distillation process, to make your mash if you're working from grain, all of that uses a lot of energy. So we're looking at ways to recover that energy, reuse it. Uh, for instance, the heat that we take away in the condensers again to um, turn the vapors back into liquid, repurposing that heat energy to preheat the next batch or maybe to use it in another process to yeah. um, maintain the fermentation temperature, for instance, in a rum fermentation because we're not just going to be focusing on gin anymore. We're actually looking at incorporating other product lines as well. So energy re uh, recovery is one aspect of it. We're also working with uh, the University of Pretoria and Brits Energy in a um, development of a solar collector system which would uh, potentially allow us to distill, even in Europe, with more limited uh, sunlight to distill purely off solar power. And that's already mm -hmm. in the technology demonstration phase. Um, water, um, I mean, water is a resource that needs to be protected. So we do use water recirculation, water recovery systems. In one of our new um, units that we're setting up, we're actually putting in a gray water system as well, where we'll be using the wastewater generated from the re reverse osmosis filtration we're going to be using that water for systems like in the systems in the bathroom for cleaning of the vehicles and so forth. We'll be reusing that. That plant will also be incorporating a rainwater capture system. 
Um, we did away with all plastic and non-recyclable uh, packaging. We've done away with in terms of uh, all, all our DTC um, equipment or shipments that we sent out. Um, we use electric vehicles for deliveries, pedal power, bicycle deliveries for local deliveries. So there's a lot that we do. Um, our sustainability plan has about 17 different aspects that we focus on. Mm. Everything from sourcing to, like I say, water, energy, recycling, waste management, and so forth. So it's those small things that you can do that eventually add up and make a difference. Well, I think it's, it's like you say, the consumer doesn't know always and they, they don't care. But this is a way to educate. And I think this is, exactly. it has to come from the businesses and it has to come from, from uh, a teaching, you know, teaching. This is what we're doing. This is what we're standing for. And this is then what the consumer understands from what he eat. Uh, he expects for the next business, you know, it, it will create this chain. So uh, I think that's wonderful that you do that. Yeah. And no, you're 100% right. Yeah. It is about educating people and making people aware because the, if you talk about something like sustainability to stop climate change, that's a big concept. That's yeah. like, you can't really wrap your mind around it. And that's when people start thinking, oh, but my decisions as an individual is not really going to make a difference. But when you turn it around and you make it specific that, you know, this bottle that you just bought online as XYZ going for it, then suddenly there's a, there's a sense of accomplishment that okay, by buying this bottle, I helped out that small urban farm. I helped out that urban um, uh, apiary that produced the honey that went into this gym. I helped create a job. Um, we also partner with Tree App. Uh, so every bottle we sell online, we plant a tree. So the person actually knows that, that by buying this, yeah. I planted a tree that helps offset my carbon footprint. So if you make it more personal, then suddenly you get buying. And like I say, at the moment, our research shows that our current consumer base sustainability is not that important to them. But as we expand, as we grow, as we enter different markets and so on, that might change. We might be, and we probably will be reaching people that, um, that it is important to. And research has shown, and not just our research, this general knowledge, that People, individuals, consumers prefer to support brands that share their uh, belief system, that share the same passions that they do and what they feel strongly about, their morals and so forth. If you share that with them, they're more likely to support you. So, yeah, it's not the main reason we're doing it. As we uh, as said, in actual fact, as many times it costs us money. We miss out on opportunities because we choose to go the sustainable route. But eventually, if there is a marketing benefit to us, great. That's fantastic. But, you know, I think is this, this is where the chain starts. It's, maybe it's difficult in the beginning and it's more expensive. And even for the consumer, it might end up being a little bit more expensive. But it, it creates this chain where as everybody starts doing it or if, if it is in place, then it starts getting um, more, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, Traction. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, absolutely. And like you mentioned, the, the education part in there becomes quite um, important as well. We want to be thought leaders, not just in terms of the consumers, but also in terms of the industry. I mean, there's a lot that a lot is being said about sustainability in the spirit industry and in the liquor industry. Um, but unfortunately, if you once you go past the 
the top layer, there's not a lot backing it up. Um, greenwashing is a term that's being thrown around quite a bit. And unfortunately, it's very true in our industry where there's a lot that's being claimed. But once you investigate, you realize, no, but that's not really the case or that doesn't really make a difference. I mean, something like offsetting, for instance, a big brand can throw money at the problem and they can offset the carbon footprint by planting trees and so forth. But that's not really changing anything. Mm -hmm. um, what you need to do is make the changes that will make a difference as much as you can, reduce your carbon footprint and your impact as much as you can, and whatever's left, that you offset. But yeah. most brands are not willing to make those changes. And I think that's where we were lucky because we didn't go from the standpoint that, that we're an established gin brand that's now going to go the sustainable route. We just did it from the beginning because the from the event side, sustainability was already quite important. Um, but yes, the education part, we're going to focus on a lot more um, going forward um, with our YouTube channels, the social media, blogs, and so forth, sharing with people what we're actually doing. We're also setting up a new flagship distillery where we'll be doing tours and experiences, not just focus on the gin and the gin production, but also on the aspects of sustainability that we work in there. We um, already have our hydroponic wall in our current distillery setup, one of our current distillery setups. We'll going to completely expand on that with a green wall system and if somebody wants to come there and learn how to do that if they want to do it in their own business or at home we're going to be give them that opportunity wow. but eventually we want to get to a point where we can actually teach other people in the industry how do you convert your distillery to a sustainable distillery or how do you start a sustainable distillery and hopefully by that time we'll be in a uh, position where we can offer not only expertise, but also the contacts, the systems, the lessons we've learned and um, the mistakes we've made, because we do make mistakes. We don't get it right every single time. Um, but by that time, hopefully we'll have a, a recipe that people can copy. Because yeah. no point doing the development and figuring out what to do, but we sit on it and keep it for ourselves. That's not going to make change on a grand scale. Yeah, and it's everybody's, it's, it's all these little things that we do that makes the change you know Absolutely. it's it's just everybody's thinking about it or realizing that the little change can then create a wave to make a big change so now i totally agree with you there but now tell me about the gins because i want to know now so do you um you you make the gin from scratch is it is it uh or, or how does it work with with your well company? So, like I said, we we didn't really start as a gin brand. We started as an events brand. Um, then the next step was to get a permanent location, uh, although uh, which was at Mercator Metropolitano in uh, Elephant and Castle in London. But that was literally still run out of one of the vans, one of the vehicles. The van was just parked there permanently, and it was a, a bar. But then they decided that they want to start making their own gin. And now in um, in the UK, as with some of uh, some other countries, um, but not South Africa. So for me, it was kind of a learning curve. They've got two sets of licenses where they've got your rectifiers and compounders license versus your distilling license. Now, with a distilling license, you work from raw material, but that has very strict guidelines and regulations in terms of the suitability of the premises, the controls, the space, the safety aspects, the uh, customs control or the excise tax control and so forth. So that's a difficult license to get and it's got a lot of requirements in terms of your facility. The easier one to get is the rectifiers and compounders license where you just buy alcohol in and then either you blend or you flavor. 
Now, that's what they started with originally, and how we still currently um, doing the bulk of our gin production is by buying in neutral spirit, neutral grain spirit, and then turning that into um, gin. What we are going to do now, as I've touched on, is we are going to expand our product range to not just go um, do gin on its own, uh, but we'll also be doing rum, we'll be doing whiskey, we'll be doing vodka, and a wide range of other products. So the the I know you're very fond of the brand name, but it's going to change slightly um, okay. because I think a gym and tonic vodka or gym and tonic rum might people will be very confused about it. So we're going to retain, I can't give away too much now. We'll be launching the new branding in the next month or so. Um, but we'll be keeping to the core of the business and we'll keeping yeah. what the brand identity that we've built up to now, but there will be slight changes um, in the brand. And obviously those products we will be uh, making off uh, from scratch. Um, I think the current plan, at least for the foreseeable future, is that the gin production will still be made by purchasing neutral uh, grain spirit, purely because to scale up to make that quantity of neutral alcohol to fulfill just our current requirements of gin production would necessitate a massive facility. I mean, we, we do quite substantial volumes. Um, and we're not there in terms of capital and so forth to put up that big a distillery. Um, and the question also becomes, I mean, is that sustainable um, to, I mean, neutral NGS uh, or neutral alcohol, whether I'm making it, whether somebody else is making it, it doesn't really make sense. So, so from a cost point of view, um, the bigger companies are can do it a lot cheaper than a small company can do it on their own. Um, plus, the, they, can, they can actually do it more sustainably because of the um, scale of the enterprise. It is a more sustainable practice for them. But our other products are non-neutral spirit products. Yes, that will be doing from scratch. And we'll be doing some, I think, groundbreaking work there in terms of how we're going to be doing it to make it more sustainable um, than some of, uh, some of the other brands are doing it. Now, you have to tone down a little bit for all the, my, my blonde... Uh, um, uh, for all the blonde people in the world yeah. <laughs> so if you if you talk about so gin is it's that's the technique that you or you use specific techniques when you start making vodka now and you start making rum um how does that and, and you you talk about also whiskey that you yeah. said you're going to make but whiskey you how does the these different processes uh differ from each other you have about seven hours? <laughs> no, okay. I'm going to have a very condensed version of it, and I'll put my teacher's hat on now. But yeah. basically, if you look at uh, alcohol production, and this is now all types of alcohol, be that wine, uh, beer, or then spirits, you've got three steps in the process, um, which is fermentation, distillation, and then spirit enhancement. Now, in the case of beer or wine, we stop with fermentation. They're both fermented products. In the case of wine, we ferment grapes, and that's our product. In the case of beer, we do a fermentation. First is what we call starch conversion, where we convert the grain carbohydrates to fermentable sugars, and that ferments to our beer, and that's how we make our beer. But for any spirit process, we still start with a fermentation. That fermentation can be any raw material. Then the fermentation gives us the alcohol. We then apply distillation to separate out the, the alcohol from the fermentation with or without flavor compounds. And then um, spirit enhancement is whatever we do with that alcohol afterwards. Now, 
if I take grain, for instance, and I love grain as a raw material because you can pretty much do whatever you want. If I take that grain and I make a fermentation, I've now made a beer, a distiller's beer to be exact, because it doesn't contain hops and so on, like you would a drinking beer, but it's still a beer. If I distill that beer and I distill it neutral, that it has no flavor, I've just got that pure alcohol out, normally at 96% um, ABV, then I've made a vodka, which is also referred to, can be also be referred to as an NGS, neutral grain spirit. It tastes like nothing, it's neutral. If I take that same fermentation and I distill it non-neutral, so I can actually taste the grain in the final spirit, then I've made a grain spirit, which some people refer to as a grain brandy, some people refer to it as oh. a, a schnapps, some people also yeah, schnapps, or some people refer to it as moonshine. Now, if I take, but it's a clear spirit that looks like vodka, the only difference is I can taste the grain in that spirit. If I take that spirit and now I put it in a barrel and I age it for three years, then I've made whiskey. Now, the barrel aging falls under the spirit enhancement. So depending on how I distill the product, retaining flavor or not retaining flavor, I can make different products. Do something to that spirit afterwards through spirit enhancement, I can make more products. Now, ginning is a spirit enhancement process. There's different ways to make gin. We talk about vapor infusion, infused distillation, um, direct infusion or maceration. There's different ways we get flavor into a gin. But if I take a neutral base or a non-neutral base and I infuse botanicals of which juniper must be one, then I've made gin. Um, that's the only difference. So if you look at, I dare say, 90 5% of the gins in the world, if not more, they're all made through the under rectifiers licenses. Uh, it might not be depending on what country that's getting legal now, but it's made by purchasing in a alcohol base and turning that into gin. That alcohol base doesn't need to be neutral grain spirit. It doesn't need to be for instance, the purposes of vodka. If I use that grain spirit base, then I'm making Dutch gin, Geneva which is the same as gin, it's just got a, a neutral or non-neutral grain base. But I can also use um, a wine base, a wine spirit base, can have that wine flavors come out, complement mm -hmm. the, the juniper and botanicals. I can use a rum base where the rum flavors come out and complement the juniper and the botanicals. So you can play around so many ways with your gin just by changing the base spirits. And that's one of the things we'll be looking at in future for limited editions and so forth. But our core range, our bulk range, will always be producing from a neutral grain spirit, purely from affordability point of view. Okay. And, so I hope uh, that clears it up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And and when it when it becomes brandy, you say when it when it goes and, and it has to then um, uh, age, is it what is it the 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 wood or what is the thing that gives the brandy this or the or the whiskey then this uh, flavor? Well, it's a combination of factors. Um, okay, firstly, if we talk about brandy, we do need to clarify again that this brandy rules is different in different countries. I mean, in South mm -hmm. Africa, for instance, brandy can only be made from grapes. There's very, very strict rules about the white type of wood you're allowed to use, how long must it be in the wood and so forth. Very similar to cognac. Um, cognac obviously being geographically protected, but brandy and cognac share a lot of the same rules and regulations. Whereas 
the word brandy in, Fr in France can apply to other fruits as well. It doesn't necessarily have to be oh, okay. grapes. Mm. Um, and in other countries, uh, the, for instance, there is no aging requirement. You can still call it brandy, whether it's aged or unaged, whether it's aged for a couple of days or whether it's aged for three years, it doesn't matter. So there is a, a the legal aspect of it makes it very complicated sometimes when you get really technical. But the, the main thing with a brandy, for instance, and with whiskey, is that it's always a non-neutral base. You must be able to taste that raw material. So whether you're tasting the grapes, whether you're tasting the fruit, or whether you're tasting, in the case of whiskey, the grain, that taste profile must be there. It cannot be a neutral product and then be aged, and you're going to expect to get a whiskey or brandy. It's not going to taste the same. Okay. Having said that, though, the wood, the barrel, does account for about 80% of the flavor profile in the final product. So um, the, fruit, the fruit tastes, the grain tastes are quite subtle sometimes. Um, in whiskies, when you're doing a peated whiskey, for instance, yes, you do taste the peat quite strongly because those uh, fusel oils that you get from the, the um, uh, process and the kilning process where the peat in flavors infuse in the grain, that can be quite strong flavors. It's a heavy fusel oil. So you don't tend to lose that as much during the barrel aging process where your grain flavors, yes, you do sometimes lose that or they be just become hidden. Uh, behind the wood flavors. Um, and then again, there's the wood, the type of wood. Um, how long is it in the wood? All of that taste makes a big difference in taste. Was the wood toasted? To what level was it toasted? Was it charred? To what level was it charged? Uh, charred? So uh, the treatment of the barrel, the barrel itself, the type of wood, all of that affects the flavor profile of the final product. And that's what makes it nice because there's yeah. one, I mean, I'm, I'm all for uh, being a purist, Believe me, and many things I'm very puristic about the products and how they should be made. But on the scale that we work, and again, it's that dare to be different, pushing the boundaries. As a craft distillery, as somebody entering new into the market, you don't want to copy what the big brands are doing. You don't necessarily want to be puristic unless that's your target market. Unless you're targeting the purist and you've got the money to spend on marketing to convince them to give your product a chance, Great, then go for it. But otherwise, you need to be the renegade. You need to be, uh, be the gorilla and just like go out there and try something totally different. Um, and it's something that I've always tried to teach my students as well. Many of them have done it. I mean, if you there's some weird product still in the pipeline that's going to come out the next couple of years with uh, brandy that's actually red in color because they're using wet pinotage barrels to do the aging. So it's a completely yes. legal product, but now the product is not brown in color that you would mm -hmm. expect. It's picking up these red pigments from the a red wine that was in the barrel beforehand. So do it. It's if you we have to keep to the rules. We don't have a choice, but within the rules, you push the boundaries as much as you can. You, you're reminding me now of Brad Payton um, from Beiterverwachtung. I spoke to him a yeah. while ago and and he's also, you know, thinking a little bit outside the box and, and doing his own thing. And I think it's just wonderful because it it's, this is also, again, where it comes from uh, from you to the consumer and, and you being daring makes the consumer being daring and and more um, sort of creative in what they want and what they're drinking, you know. So uh, I think this is wonderful that you do that. Yeah. Now, a lot of people, again, like the traditionalists and the purists would say, no, but it's gimmicks, it's gimmicky and so on. And people are very negative towards gimmicks. But my feeling on that is if I don't care if it's a gimmick. If the product's good, if it yeah. tastes good, and if you want to drink it again, 
then if you bought it because of a gimmick, I don't care. Because obviously it's successful. If people like it, then it works. Yeah. Anything has seen a gimmick the first time you try it. But if it's in 10 years from now, you don't remember that originally somebody thought it was a gimmick. And um, Craft Spirits has shown that to us. Um, you say now that, that it inspires people to do things differently, and that's very, very true. If you look at the, the history in the USA where Craft Spirits started, um, the, the mixologists there were the guys that made it a success, the guys that did the cocktails. Because what happened was the Craft Spirit producers came and suddenly gave them whiskeys and rums and vodkas and gins that were weird, that were different, and that allowed them to come up with weird and different cocktails and put it out there, and people loved it, and that stimulated the interest in the actual spirits and the sale of the spirits. Now, we're in a very lucky position because we're a, we define ourselves as a bar-to-bottle distillery um, because that's our journey. We didn't start – most distilleries start off, they make a bottle of product, and then they sell it into the trade, and they sell it to the consumers, and then eventually they'll put up a tasting room, and they'll maybe have a bar where you can buy cocktails and so forth. We did it the other way around. We started off – with the cocktails and the bars, and then eventually, based on what we saw there and what people wanted and what they wanted to drink, we developed a product range which led to the foundation mm-hmm. of the distillery. But now we're taking it the other way back again, where we we still use our bars to conduct market research. We do our limited edition batch, we put it out on the bars, we see what the reaction is. We, uh, our mixologists develop cocktails that complement our products and help to push them into the marketplace. And then when we approach the trade, we can go with them with this complete solution where we're not trying to sell you a box of gin. We're selling you a box of gin with the perfect serves that will help you sell them in your bar with the cocktail recipes. And you know what? You can even bring your staff to us and we'll teach them how to make those cocktails. Wow. So doing that package, you, you're not you're not just putting out products in the, uh, hoping that it's going to sell. You're actually creating avenues to sell those products. Yeah, because it is in the bar where the product will be um, used in its ultimate form or, or, or presented in its uh, how it's supposed to be. So what a great idea that you, that you have that and that you do it that way. No, no. If, if you look at the UK gin market, the Craft Gin Club, I think that's their name. It's like this box set that goes out every couple of months and they send it out uh, the gin selection for the month with tonics and garnishes and suggested perfect serves and cocktails and I've been following the because I need to get to know the UK market now I've only been in the UK for five months so I, I still need to understand what's going on but you'll see a lot of the people they they're not really looking forward to the gins in the box. They're looking forward to the serves and the cocktails and the experiences. And again, our, our research has shown us that um, a very large majority of drink gin consumers in the UK see themselves as somewhat of an expert. And they and specifically in terms of mixology and gin cocktails and gin serves. So you need to play to that market. You need to satisfy that need of the consumer to, I don't just want a bottle of gin. I want a way to present this bottle of gin, share the experience of other people. Yeah. So now, Hendra, um, tell me about the gins that you have at the moment. Are they different flavors or, uh, yeah? Yeah, no, our gins are very different. Um, mm-hmm. We've got a, a four gins in our core range. Um, then we've also now launched a coffee liqueur recently. 
Uh, and we're also going to be doing uh, quite a few. We've already done two limited edition gins. We'll be doing more of those. So our four core range gins, the first one was our Mercato gin or market gin, uh, which was a play on our location in Mercato Metropolitano in Elephant Castle. Um, so Mercato Metropolitano is a fruit market and hence the Mercato gin. So it is a Mediterranean-inspired gin as the brand, the Bacato brand is Italian, so we took our influence from there. And it's a very herbaceous, vegetative uh, gin. It's got strong basil, thyme, rosemary notes, very green gin, low juniper. Um, pairs really well with um, any, uh, well, with Indian tonic water, but our preferred service actually with, a, um, with flavored tonics, we actually utilize it um, because that, herb flavor comes through quite strong even um, when you use it with flavored tonics and it's done really well in competitions we won a figure spirit master award for it we won double gold in the san francisco international spirits competition so it's a very very um well received gin although it's not our most popular gin our most popular gin is our ruby gin um which is a pink gin uh, we had to do one. You, these days, the marketplace, you have to have a pink gin out there. But we didn't want to do what many brands do and just have a London dry with pink coloring in it and put that out there. We wanted a pink gin that actually tasted like something. So the um, the pink gin is called Ruby. It's a play on words on the two main ingredients or two of the main ingredients in there, which is rhubarb as well as um, honey, hence the bee. So rue and bee. Um, so the honey we get from urban apiaries. It's actually the honey is made in London from flowers that grows in London. The hives, everything is in London. Um, some of them sourced like I think 100 meters or 200 meters from the distillery. Um, so we use that with the rhubarb to create this um, pink gin uh, with a very, very uh, prominent rhubarb flavor, quite a sweet gin as well. Then we've got our craft gin uh, with a K. Um, now, our partners at Mercato Metropolitano and our neighbors, uh, literally their brewery is right next to the distillery, is German Craft. Um, and what we did is we uh, utilized one of the hopses that they use in their beer, which is a citrus hops. We um, do an, a vacuum extract of that because anybody that's worked with hops would know that if you push your temperatures too high, <clears throat> sorry, the hops oils are very volatile. So you lose that flavor profile quite quickly. So what we do is we do a vacuum extraction of the um, hops to get that pure flavor um, out, very citrusy, hoppy flavor. And we then blend that into the distillation process where it's make the base juniper, but then blend in the hops oils. Um, sorry, the base gin. And that base gin obviously has juniper, angelica, coriander, some of the normal uh, ingredients, but also a strong grapefruit component, which then complements the, um, the citrus flavors from the hops. Mm -hmm. And then our last core one is our London dry gin. Now, we again, we decided if we're going to do a London dry, we're a London-based distillery. We're not going to do London dry just because London dry style. We're going to do a London, London dry. So the um, M25 is the circle road that goes around central London. Yeah. And all the botanicals we use in our London Dry can be sourced inside the M25. Wow. So, for instance, um, citrus standard in all gins, but there's no citrus in the M25. 
So we couldn't use citrus. What we therefore did is we used lemon balm and lemon verbena, which are, do have citrus characteristics, but the plants grow inside the M25, and that we used to get the citrus flavors. Linden blossoms, which grow pretty much everywhere, almost considered a weed in some cases throughout London. Uh, apples, uh, which actually grow orchards in Kensington and so forth in London, where we use their apples um, inside our London dry. So everything, all the botanicals in there, including juniper, can be found inside the M25, and that's what we based uh, the London Dry on. So and that's that, our, our four yeah. quarters. But the lemon, lemon verbena um, has a very, I mean, I know it as a herb, and, and it has a very soft uh, lemony uh, smell. And even if you make a tea with it, it's it's not as strong as a lemon. So I can just imagine that that must be an amazing taste in the gym. No, it is, it is very different. Um, the, the issue comes in when you use subtle flavors like that, that you have to be very uh, careful in how you distill it um, and your ratios, that you don't lose them in the, in the broader schemes of things. And sometimes that is also why we don't just use just the lemon verbena, because if, if it was used on its own, you probably wouldn't detect it. But yeah. because we um, are combining it with other citrus compounds, you actually get a more depth of flavor when you're tasting the, the gin. Some of it comes through in the aftertaste, not so much in the um, in the upfront on the palate. So it you have to play around to give a more all over experience in the in the gin, um, and that's the route that we've taken with most of the our core range gins. They, some of the recipes are quite complex. Can have up to 10 or 12 uh, botanicals in the recipe. Um, but in our um, new ranges on the limited edition products, we're actually going a slightly different route. I think those are it's because of the recipes I'm developing. My, my viewpoint about gins are a, a bit different. Um, I don't I don't necessarily agree with the idea that you have to have large numbers of botanicals to make a good gin. Um, I feel that if you limit yourself to just a few botanicals, you actually create a gin that for the consumer is more interesting. Because um, if you've got too many flavors playing around against one another in a gin, they don't really know what they're tasting. Where if yeah. you choose three or four botanicals that mesh well together, that work well together, that complement one another, but they are also clearly distinguishable. You're suddenly putting a gin forward towards the consumer who, as I've already mentioned, they see themselves as quite knowledgeable, but now they can actually have a gin there and they can go, you know what, I'm actually tasting the grapefruit. I'm tasting cinnamon. I'm tasting X, Y, Z. Uh, they can actually taste it, not because somebody put a card in front of them telling them you should be tasting this and they're convincing themselves they're tasting it. They're actually picking it up. And you can do that when you use a smaller number of botanicals that are quite unique and different. Um, so in some of the limited edition ones, we're going that route. Uh, for instance, for Jubilee, we launched the Jubilee gin, which only had four botanicals. Um, Angelica, which acts as a fixative to bind the flavors together. Um, juniper, obviously, because that has to be there. And then rose and chocolate uh, from Cocoa Nibs. Um, and we based that on some of the Queen's fav uh, favorite dessert being um, chocolate cake. And then the rose, we wanted to use her favorite uh, flower. Unfortunately, it's poisonous, so we couldn't use that. Oh, okay. So we went for the national flower, which is the rose. And it worked beautifully because uh, everybody's like, 
associating. They don't know what to expect. They're like reading this rose and chocolate. They've got no idea what to expect. And everybody immediately when they drink it, it's Turkish light. It's chocolate covered Turkish light. And they just want more and more and more because there's that association with the flavors. It's not something weird. It's not something different. It's something that they know. And there's a mental association. Um, and it's something that I feel uh, we as distillers sometimes don't do is we don't capitalize on the existing sensory memory that people already have. I mean, your sense of smell is 70, 80% of your sense of taste. And your sense of smell is linked to the memory center of the brain. So if you put something in front of somebody where they're going to make an emotional connection with that taste and that smell, you're going to have a winner every single time. Yeah. And you know, it's like it's the same about uh, with food as well. Um, I also think that if it's too much and it's too much, too many flavors, and it's too complicated, then it it also loses what what you are supposed to taste. So I, I'm I'm all for that theory of yours. I think this is great. Yeah, be more simplistic. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's other benefits as well. I mean, there's business benefits because the less botanicals you use, the shorter your supply chain is, the easier it is to manage your suppliers and your logistics, um, the cheaper it is to make the gin in some cases. Obviously, it depends on what botanical you use, but yeah. So yeah. There, there are other benefits as well, but for me, it's always about the taste. Um, it's about the flavor. It's about the consumer experience. I mean, if you give the consumer a good enough experience, you can charge whatever you want for your product. Eventually, they will still buy it. So the cost yeah. is uh, actually besides the point. You need to give the consumer what they want. And again, market research shows us what people want is flavors. That is the thing. They want flavors they don't want boring they want different they want unique they want to read something on the label and be able to taste that in the final product and that's what the consumer wants so that's what we aim to give to them yeah now i i think that's wonderful and uh but but now tell me um Henry, what is your wish for the future Oof. okay oh, how much time you <laughs> no, we've got um, we've got so many projects on the um, uh, going at the moment, and uh, I'm literally my wish for the future right now is to tick them all off successfully as quickly as possible. Um, yeah. We have an amazing uh, opportunity that came our way now. Um, the London Pride event, uh, which is happening on the second of July, which is I think the biggest Pride event in the world. I think especially this year, it's going to be huge um, because for two years now of COVID, they weren't able to hold it. So we were given the, the contract to run all the beverage um, operations for London Pride. So that's one and a half million people that we have to take care of for a whole day. Um, so if, if to put it in context, two years ago, it was run by Budweiser. And now suddenly it's oh. us, this small gin distillery in, uh, in London. So that's that's a big stress factor at the moment uh, that we need to make a big success out of that. Um, at the same time, we are uh, setting up a new production facility in rugby, which will focus on contract production. Uh, we've got a couple of contract products that we're producing now, a new aperitif, a wine-based aperitif that we'll be launching soon. I've mentioned the coffee liqueur that we make in um, collaboration with Hage. Um, we're about to roll out an RTD product as well, where gym and tonic will finally be gym and tonic. Uh, canned gym and tonics will be rolling that out uh, with pride as well. Um, 
we're going through a rebranding and then we're setting up our new flagship distillery um, in London. We're just waiting for the final paperwork on that to go through so we can start with the installation and so forth. And we will hopefully soon be opening up in your backyard in uh, Vienna as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, also partnering with a food market there. Um, so hopefully that'll be our first European-based uh, distillery operation, opening up the EU market for us. With, with Brexit, is way more complicated now, so we're just moving some operations that way as well. Yeah. Um, and we um, also started our first exports. Uh, we literally had last week our first pallet uh, landed in Italy, and we're in negotiations to start exporting to uh, the USA and Canada so yeah there's a lot happening at the moment a lot of very exciting things happening and for now my my short-term uh, dreams are just to get all those projects successfully completed long term um we want to grow our flagship distillery to its full potential like i said launch the additional products in three years four years time having our whiskey on the market as well as our rum and our vodka and everything else and our um hopefully as well a a way to guide other distillers and future distillers um, along the sustainable distilling route um, yeah. to have a, be it an academy, being it a training facility, but have something in place in a couple of years' time where we would be where we would be able to share that knowledge and our journey with people so that they can follow in those footsteps. Yeah, because you've you've got the experience now, so it's just. Um giving the information and and teaching i think this is wonderful that you do that you know that that you even have that thought process of yes we'll we'll put it there for other people also to to uh, it's like i said earlier Mm -hmm. It's like I said earlier, there's no point in, in doing the work, doing the research, making the mistakes, learning the lessons, and mm -hmm. then keeping all that knowledge for yourself. How yeah. does that benefit anybody? I mean, we're a small company. We've got big dreams, but we, mm -hmm. we are a small company. We on our own, we're not going to make a big difference. But if we can help other people and we can grow a network of distillers that feel the same way, that share the same values, that support the same companies that are also along the sustainability track, then, yeah, we could start making a difference and change the mindset and change the mindset of the consumer where yeah. those things actually do become important to, uh, to them and not just a feel-good side effect, but it actually becomes, becomes a driving factor in the yeah no that's true but now henry i have one more question for you sure. uh do you can you do a shout out for your favorite coffee shop or restaurant there in the uk where, where are you <laughs> you're based in london so there must be a lot in your area i'll be honest with you i have not really had had much time over the last five oh, months to explore um I wish I had, but uh, because there is so much to do, so much to see, um, yeah. so many restaurants. We actually, um, uh, my wife and I, we've uh, found a place in Greenwich, um, and we just, I think that was the um, the agent's easiest contract she's ever signed because I was an hour early. And I spent that hour walking around and I basically already made up my mind before I walked into the, the apartment, we're taking it. I don't care what it looks like. Oh, this is an amazing area. And it is because there's so many restaurants. There's so much of a food culture in Greenwich specifically, but as London for a whole. Um, Yo, if I had to do a shout out, I would I would shout out to the guys at Macau Metropolitano. All our food vendors there are just absolutely amazing. It's um, fantastic to to visit there. And I mean, in Elephant and Castle, we've got oh, I don't even I can't remember. I think thirty 
different food offerings from Sri Lankan to Pakistani to Vietnamese, even a South African grill, um, all kinds of food there. And the guys, it's these small little mom and pop operations, these small little shops, literally three meters by three meters square and limited menus, but they do it with so much passion and so much effort that goes into the food that they provide. It's really so good. And you're always spoiled for choice. So yeah, if I had to do a shout out, it'll be to them. Well, I know Elephant and Castle is so much in the city. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's yeah, yeah. I, I know the area there and it's, it's wonderful that I haven't even known. Uh, well, I don't know about these restaurants, but uh, if, if I you, visit, if you come I'll around, yeah. Now, if, you, if you're in London, let me know. I'll take you to uh, to both. I mean, both sites. Uh, we operate in two Macarthur sites. Um, the other one is actually in Mayfair. Um, and that is a visual overload like you wouldn't believe. It's uh, in really? an old, uh, mm-hmm. it's in a listed building. I can't remember what listing. But it's uh, the old St. Mark's Church, which has now been converted into this food market. But it's still the church. You, you walk yeah. in there, the stained glass windows and the uh, galleries and so forth, the organ and so forth, and so on. And it's this amazing experience. Amazing. People are just, if they walk in there, there's, you see them. <laughs> you know it's the first time yeah. because they just stand in it, totally overwhelmed with what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, no, this great experiences. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So, Henry, thank you so much for this um, wonderful insight into the world of a gym and tonic. And, uh, and I hope to see you in Vienna soon. No, thank you very much. I hope to see you there as well. And yeah, uh, hopefully we'll be up and running there very quickly and you can experience all the cocktails for yourself. Yeah, that would be wonderful. 